0: This is Mouth Media Network covering the
1: business of lifestyle. This episode of All Possibilities is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio.
0: How do you know that you, the you that you are right now, is the best you? Have you ever wanted to completely reinvent yourself? Coming up in part one of a special two-part interview, you'll meet a man who has done literally that, simply by flipping a switch. Not once, but twice. Nusrat Durrani is the general manager at MTV Networks, where he's worked for two decades. And yet he calls himself now a recovering media executive. You'll hear how intuition and a willingness to humble himself allowed him to make the hardest decision of his life, to travel across the world on a whim to become a company's oldest intern in history, and how he consciously reimagined himself, why he took a sabbatical to connect with what really matters, and how America is largely ignoring the rest of the world. Plus, why Bob Dylan and David Bowie are so important to him. Welcome to the All Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. Possibilities. Nusrat, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today.
1: I'm very excited to be here.
0: Let's start with mtv how did you get involved and what was that experience like
1: um i'll give you the short version um i happened to watch mtv in um, a completely different country i was in dubai in those uh, days and uh, one day literally i flicked on the television in the evening and i saw for the very first time uh, all the music that i'd grown up with and that I loved, and more specifically, I saw um, a David Bowie video, uh, Let's Dance. And obviously I'd heard the record before. Bowie was one of my idols growing up, but I'd never seen the actual video. And I'd never seen the context of rock and roll and pop music until I watched MTV in Dubai. And um, I was very inspired by the channel. I was very provoked by the channel, and I did a lot of research and found out what how they had started and what it was all about. And um, eventually, I flew to New York and asked them to hire me. So that's um, how it started. As you can imagine, they that did. That takes guts. <laughs> it didn't go well uh, because apparently they didn't just hire people. Who walked in off the street, just like that, <laughs> um you know, and I thought that, look, I mean, I grew up on rock and roll music, you know, I had a fair amount of knowledge of it, uh and that that might be enough that I was a pop culture enthusiast from a different country, but of course it didn't hire me, and I was um destroyed, I was shattered, and um and then I, you know, I discovered New York City and fell in love with it, and traveled the U.S. and Canada, and then went back to Dubai to my job. And what if, were you doing before? Um, I was working for Honda, the car, uh, as a marketing manager, and I had a great job. But you know, once I had the MTV virus and the virus of pop music and culture, and the virus of New York City, it was impossible to continue. So I actually came back to New York. I went back to MTV and I said, you have to hire me. And they said, well, you're so kind to come back, but, you know, we don't just hire people like that. You know, you have to have a communications background. You have to have, um, you know, experience in media and things like that. And, And, you know, again, they rejected me. But I kept at it. And I had no plan B, pretty much. And eventually, uh, the fine lady in HR called me one day and said, hey, you know, I'm very ins- inspired by the fact that you 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 left your job in another country and you came to New York and you've been to us so many times and you just won't give up. And she said, you know, it's, so I have a, a an opening for you if you're interested. And I said, really, that's amazing. And she said, yes, um, we have a great internship program. And, um, you know, it's very competitive, but I would consider you. Now, think about it this way. In my previous job, I had a multimillion-dollar budget and I was overseeing a pretty large team of people for a very prestigious company. It had a whole career before I walked into the door at MTV. So for me to go back to being an intern was not exactly the, you know, the opening that I thought she was, she was offering me. And, um, you know, and she was very upfront. It's like, look, it's for, you know, seniors in college. And it's really, you, you, there may be a lot of photocopying of papers and fetching coffee.
0: And how old were you at the time?
1: I was 35 years old. And it was the hardest decision that I've ever made in my entire professional life, but as I said before, I didn't really have a pet plan B, and something told me to do it something crazy
0: what was that something
1: I think it was intuition, you know I think I was intuitively drawn to the notion that this is what I'm interested in doing this is where this is my calling. I had no previous media background and so I called her back and I said I will take it and that's when my adventure at MTV started and I was at 35 the oldest intern MTV had ever hired I think still the record maybe (laughs) I'm not sure but um, it was incredibly humbling and to be honest incredibly revelatory because I had no, I, I learned everything about, I researched everything about MTV before I actually walked through the door. So I knew much more about it than the average employee would, the average intern would certainly.
0: What did you end up doing as the intern and how did that evolve over time?
1: I actually worked for a pretty interesting department. At the time, they were called the market development team. And their job was to identify new distribution platforms for the MTV brand. Uh, it was headed up by a wonderful lady, uh, and my direct boss was also a really, really interesting and nice guy. And you know, I told them very early on. And by the way, in those in the some talk about '95, '96, I wasn't the person I am now. I had just come from a very different work environment and two very different cultures. I had worked essentially for a Japanese brand, um, which was just philosophically managed very differently. So not only was I changing countries and corporate cultures, I was also landing into probably one of the most rowdy and chaotic and creative environments in media, which was MTV in its heyday. So I was going through all sorts of crazy shocks and I was a shy, withdrawn, reticent professional. I wasn't this aggro, assertive person that you need to be sometimes to succeed in media. But somehow I, you know, because it was so important for me to get have a career there, I actually told my supervisors, I said, look, you can treat me like an intern, like a, somebody without any experience, and I'll do the fetching of coffee and the faxing of stuff. Um, Or you could use me for what I am and I'm an experienced marketing professional and I have an MBA and I could be probably more productive if you actually use me for what I really bring, you know. And they did. And they gave me a very interesting project, which I think I impressed them with at the end of the summer. And at the end of the summer, they hired me. And there was no looking back. Um, It wasn't easy, obviously, because at 35 years old, I was reimagining and recreating an entire career in a new country, in a new industry, in one of the most competitive cities of the world. So, yeah, I think the word easy has never really uh, it's never has never been applicable to me um, in in my personal or professional life.
0: But something still had you keep going.
1: Of course. I mean, I think that, you know, we keep going because we have dreams and fantasies and we have um, hunger and curiosity uh, and ambition. Yes, absolutely. And uh, MTV was a phenomenal environment for me. I mean, I think that I'm very, very fortunate to have worked there. And I don't regret for a single moment having called a lady at HR and saying, I will take that internship as a 35 year old. Marketing professional.
0: What are some of the highlights? Your favorite memories of your time there?
1: You know, I was—I've uh, been—I've been at MTV for twenty years, or so, maybe more. Um, so there's a there's a lot to draw from. You know, it is indeed one of the most remarkable cultures that exists anywhere in the world. Uh, I think people think. I exaggerate, or we, the MTV alumni, uh, exaggerate when we when we talk about us getting paid to have fun. Um, there is no, at least for, certainly for me, there was no distinction between my passions and my professional life for all the years I spent there. Um, it is in, uh, it is unique. It's a unique environment. Um, it's filled with incredibly special people. Um, both on the creative side and on the business side, and the culture certainly when I was there for most of those years was magic um so you know going I, the lines between work and and pleasure and personal and professional time um is is blurred at m t v You really don't know when you're working and you're not working because i it's not work you know um And it's not fun in games i think that we always believed that we were doing special things we always believed that we were you know creating magic every day and having fun doing it and i for one certainly because i it was so hard for me to get a job there um i did i never for one single second took that for granted I had to be my best person and I had to I had to actually reimagine my entire personality once I joined MTV. And I, it was a deliberate act of reimagination rather than okay, you're becoming incre- incrementally a better professional by picking up a new skill or going to some trainings or whatever. No. I went through a complete and radically re-imagine, reimagination of myself. Once I joined the company, because that was the only way I could have survived and succeeded there.
0: You had mentioned that you were shy and reticent before. Help us understand the you beforehand mm-hmm. and then the you that you had to create out of thin air, really.
1: Well, you know, so let's just back up a little bit and tell me you know I grew up in India Um as the only son in a family of three children my father was a sc- scholar he was very educated my mom's a doctor uh i grew up very privileged um relative to other people in the country i went to an an elite school and you know in india unfortunately when you're a boy um as is true of a lot of cultures uh you know you're treated like a prince it's assumed that you're going to be you're a god and you're going to gr- grow up to be you know, do godly things. You just give in preferential treatment. And I don't agree with that, but that's how it was. That's what I inherited. And so I just drifted through life living. I mean, I wasn't arrogant or spoiled, but I just, I I, I grew up in a very specific environment. I had incredible parents um, uh, who created uh, two very, very, uh, you know, interesting role models for me. And, um, But the truth of the matter is I could have drifted through life as a prince and never felt the need to, you know, do anything, to struggle in any way. But I had hunger, I I had rock and roll in my heart, and I had to leave home. It was very painful. And I left home and I worked in Delhi for a few years and then I went to Dubai and I worked there. Now Dubai was a strange environment. I knew that I wasn't going to live there. Um, it was a stepping stone. Eventually, I wanted to come to New York. And Dubai is a very strange culture. It's a hallucination, you know. It's, uh, and it's great for some people, and it's not so great for others. I mean, it's not, it wasn't the, the city, and the culture wasn't necessarily a fit for me. Um, because it's a culture of mediocrity. It's a culture of fabrication. It's, it's, it's a construct. And you know uh I'm rebellious inside, although I might have had a shy exterior i i am not very good with the status quo, but having said that, I did have a great job dubai does have its benefits it's secure it's safe um and um it pays well um but, you know, and I happened to work for a really good company. I believed in Honda and its 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 culture. I got to travel a lot um I saw the world uh but you know it was so very different. I didn't need to be an extrovert to succeed. I didn't need to push that hard, and I could have continued with my original personality and just gone the way that so many of my other contemporaries did, which is you know a gradual rise professionally and you become wealthier and some, you know, um, you do your thing. But that's not what I'm about. So eventually when I watched MTV for the very first time, that was a trigger for me to actually transition to a new world. Um, but the f- the fact is that fast forward to New York City and MTV, um, you know how competitive this city is. And I'm, I was working for one of the, the most iconic brands of all time. And that is very competitive also. So I knew that for the first, first year and a half or two, they were a blur for me for so many reasons. One, I went through a reverse cultural shock. And what that means is that I came to the U.S. with a very sophisticated understanding relatively of what New York is, what American culture is about. And um, you know what my place in it might be, in my in my fantasy world, but actually I found New York to be quite ignorant. They had no idea who I was. A lot of people thought Dubai is in India. Um, they had zero, uh, not zero, but they had not as nuanced an understanding of my world and where I came from as I did about New York. And I'd actually thought. Man, New York is so—it's the center of the universe, right? So you would—the center of the universe needs to know the peripheral. You—you uh, you know, <laughs> supposedly, countries, yes. supposedly, right? And that was such a shock to me that it was very disappointing that the people really didn't know much about the rest of the world, and I was particularly disappointed that the culture of the rest of the world didn't seem to manifest in mainstream American media you didn't you saw very little of it, even now you see very little of it. Meanwhile, though I had grown up in India, listening to Bob Dylan and David Bowie and Madonna and Michael Jackson and all sorts of people, and you know watching Hollywood films and reading literature from the u s and the rest of the world um, so I was very puzzled actually perhaps perhaps naively about this asymmetrical distribution of ideas. I thought that when I came here, I would be exposed to a much bigger universe of things. And it was disappointing. Um, but apart from that cultural shock, I also realized that my personality w- is not the kind of personality that is f- that necessarily succeeds uh, or succeeds easily in this country, in this industry. This laid back sort of reticent, reserved persona that I had, shy, it wasn't, I didn't see that as a template for success. Because I looked around me and like I'm sitting in a conference room and everyone's just yakking away and like, you know, grabbing the mic and I'm just sitting there and I have nothing to say. And people, I was just like part of the woodwork actually. Um, And this is not a critique of the company, it's just the culture of media. And I was like, "Whoa, it's not going to work out," especially since I had so much, so many things to say. You know,
0: how did you break out of that? What was the process for you, or was it like overnight? I'm this is who I'm going to be.
1: There was a particular incident that occurred. It was where I think that 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 incident. Actually, triggered my re-imagination of the self. We were sitting in a conference room, as we all often did, discussing a show called "Movies That Rock," and it was a meeting. It's a just ideation meeting, you know. And we were talking about okay, which film to to program for the next few months, or whatever, something like that. And I was like, you know there are so many Bob Dylan documentaries that we haven't seen recently in my, you know, in, on, I hadn't seen in, on, in, uh, in U.S. media. One of them was called Rinaldo and Clara. And the other one was um, Don't Look Back. Now, as a Dylan fanatic, I knew all his stuff. I had actually even watched Rinaldo and Clara, which hadn't been released, I believe, in the U.S. properly or something. I don't know. And so I was like, I wanted to say this. And when everyone was talking about flash dance and this and that. And I was like, wait, I need to. And so I did. I f- finally spoke up and I said, hey, what about we'd program a Dylan film? And there was pin drop silence in the room, like literally Everyone was like, "Whoa!" First of all, I think they were shocked that I spoke, (laughs) and then when I spoke, I I dropped this sort of D bomb of you know Bob Dylan. It was like everybody's god, you know. And I was like, "Wow, I've said something terrible." And then finally, somebody—and I won't name them—but somebody turned around to me and said, "This." They said, "But Nusrat, what would you know about Bob Dylan?" And in that moment, I realized what was going on, actually. It became very clear. I thought about it later, not at that moment, but in in recapping that, that what had transpired in that conference room. By the way, no one said anything maliciously or malignantly. It was just how we are, you know? And my uh, analysis of that was something like this. They simply assumed that because I came from India and from Dubai or something like that, wherever I came from, and I never said anything and I looked a different way or whatever, that I wouldn't know anything about Bob Dylan. Mean in the meantime, I knew everything about Dylan. There might have been to know. I mean, of course, that's stating a lot because <laughs> Dylan's a complex history and and you know. But you know what? I knew a lot about Dylan. I mean, he was he was my idol. Still is to this day. But for somebody to assume that I wouldn't know anything about him simply because I came from some, somewhere else was just like, to me, that was the explanation for why I hadn't made any traction in the company, which I hadn't. I mean, I was treated well, don't get me wrong. I was I was employed there, but I didn't make any impact for the first couple of years. And when I it set, sank into me, I mean, look, I was reticent and shy, but I wasn't stupid, you know? So... <laughs>
0: The gears are still turning.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, wow, people don't, they think I'm maybe some sort of village hick or something that I don't really know anyone, anything about pop culture. Uh, So I said, no, I have to actually completely change this whole thing. So I went into a very methodical and deliberate creation of a new persona, and why was it methodical? It was because it was it was my blueprint to success at MTV and in the U.S. and in New York. I first of all enrolled the help of HR. We did a Myers Briggs type thing, several of those.
0: What is your type?
1: I actually don't remember because it wasn't very useful to me uh. that whole thing. But anyway, they said, "Hey, here's what you you know you should do," or something like that. And then I said, "Okay, that's one thing." So I went into, I created for myself on my own plan, which was going to last, I think, eight or nine months of development. And I identified four or five things I needed to do. First of all, I needed to become an expert at the industry itself. So I went like really gonzo into that, like cable, broadcast, advertising, media itself, marketing, whatever else I didn't know about pop culture, I fully immersed myself. And that was on my own time the second was i thought that i needed to be an eloquent and articulate speaker so i took courses at nyu i would actually stand in front of the mirror and talk for hours you know um i wanted to improve the way i talked i had an accent which we don't we don't enjoy people with accents in this country um you may have heard that Incident that we or we don't enjoy even language, um, or we're not tolerant of it. So I, I I learned how to speak force forcefully, but also lose a little bit of the accent. I didn't want to lose it completely, but I I did a lot of modulation exercises and things like that. I changed the way I dress, and one of the people I had read about at MTV was a gentleman by the name of Fred Sybert, who was actually the first marketing officer for MTV. He created the I Won My MTV campaign. I en- enlisted his help. He's still to this day one of my mentors. And I said, Fred, I need to do a brand revamp. Like, how do I... You know, and through conversations with him, I started d- dressing differently. And I still dress the same, essentially all black or white. Because I had to create a brand for myself, and I had to shed the old brand. And
0: what was it before?
1: Well, you know, I was. You wore all sorts of all sorts of colors. I was like a zanier-looking person, but I was reticent. as like I had a personality, but it was. I wasn't, you know, extrovert. You, I wouldn't be the first person to to work to work the room and socialize with people. I was just like different, and working with Fred, you know, I, not that he was telling me to wear black, but he, he communicated to me the power of personal branding, and um, I did the eight months of off off the re- completely off the record on my own time, training to become somebody else. And by the way, I wasn't. It was a light switch. It wasn't a gradual thing because I had decided that on that one particular day when I think the moment is right, I will switch this other personality on. Yeah. And I did.
0: I can completely understand flipping the light switch because in many ways I see my personality very similar to yours where I can remember countless conference room meetings where I would be in the background listening, analyzing, and things would bubble up for me where I know if I just said it, it would change the course of the conversation. And it took actually breaking past whatever was limiting me and my personality to actually say something. And in those moments were pin drops Mm -hmm. where it would then fundamentally change something. Mm -hmm. And it took a while for me to, to see the power in that and actually embrace it. And so I, I didn't, my light switch was, years in the making so Mm -hmm. i really i i i can understand what it takes to to reimagine yourself in that way and i really i really respect that thank you coming up you'll hear how nusrat after 20 years at mtv flipped another light switch and how that has changed the course of his life Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com.
1: Greetings, Mouth Media Network listener. My name is Davin Riley, and I'm willing to bet you like music. And even if my assumption is wrong, I still think you should come and check out our show, The Music Lover Podcast, where we sit down with entrepreneurs, pioneers, artists, and the unsung heroes of the music industry. Together, we'll uncover the insider perspectives on some of your favorite companies and artists as we analyze music business trends through a technological lens. Find us at The Music Lover Podcast. But remember, that's music lover without the vowels. M-S-C-L-V-R. Yes were that cool and since you're cool too we should be friends the music lover podcast we'll see you there
0: so it's been 20 years what led to this decision to switch the light switch again
1: Well, to be honest, it should have happened earlier, um, except that I had the best job in the world. I think that people should take a sabbatical and refresh themselves every three or four years, if not sooner, or at least every five years. And in my previous life, I had actually reimagined myself once every five years. So I was in Delhi. I used to work in New Delhi for five years, and then I went Uh, I moved to Dubai in a completely different industry, completely different country. So that was a reinvention. Uh, And then five years later, I was in Dubai for five years, and five years later, that was another reimagination. But then this one with MTV is 20 years. It's it's a very, very long time to be in one country, uh, one company uh, in a very turbulent and very competitive industry. And I think I'm just extraordinarily fortunate. Um, And... And I stayed for so long because I loved my job and I do believe I had the best job in the world. I'm not saying that with any, uh, you know, uh, hyperbole from my end. I mean, people might have been making more money or they might have had even more status than I did. But I was allowed by the company to do what I wanted, which also made sense to them, which is to make MTV a more global brand rather than an international brand and to create connections with global pop culture around the world. Um, So, you know, I have had a phenomenal, phenomenal 20 years there. Uh, And you asked me what led to the change. Um, You know, what led to the change was that, you know, although I had this amazing, amazing job, which never felt like a job, and I got to travel the world and do very interesting, innovative things that were actually on the bleeding edge of pop music and culture. Uh, and my career at MTV itself has been always on the innovation side. I was part of the team that launched the interactive side of MTV and mtv.com and brought us into the digital realm. Um, and then my last gig there was to the creation of MTV World, which is this global content engine, um, which I started and also managed for many, many years. I've always been on the innovation side. Uh, and so despite my division being on the cutting edge and, and on the forefront of change, the general forces that are at work in media and in pop culture, I think are headed in the wrong direction as far as, this is my humble personal opinion. Um, and what also happens is whether or not you're a you're a sort of woke uh, and and sensitive executive that is mindful of what's happening in the world and mindful of our place in it, uh, there is something that happens to all of us, I think, in the aggregate, or most of us in the aggregate. And, uh, and that is this false sense of uh, security, this laziness, this arrogance that comes from being a senior media executive at MTV, Um, um, and I felt that, you know, I really did, I needed a, a wake up call. I think a lot of countries, uh, a lot of companies, um, need a wake up call. I think a lot of, um, incumbents like senior executives in these companies need a wake up call or a complete sort of splash of cold water. Because we are often on the business side trying to solve the wrong problems, you know, uh, trying to treat the symptoms rather than the larger sort of, you know, disease, if you will, or the larger, the the more holistic issue that needs to be to be solved. I know I'm speaking abstractly now, but we can talk more specifically in a, in a minute. And I felt that, you know, there came a crossroads for me professionally where I, I could choose a direction. I could do this, go direction A or direction B. And to me, both directions seemed wrong because they were both the, wrong, we, both the wrong directions. I wanted to go in a different direction because the world is going in a different direction. And it seemed, it seemed to me very counterintuitive to make incremental changes to the work we were doing in media Rather than the dramatic, radical shift that is required f- for us to come back on track. Now, if you want to have a conversation about media, I'm happy to, in broad stroke terms. But that was my, my sort of the overall schema of like what I thought needed to be done. And 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 over the, my last two or three years uh, in my job, it had been accumulating, and rather than Change my job or change the company I was working for, or something like that, which was which would still put me in the same industry. I thought that I needed to actually one more time completely reimagine myself, and and it, it, I went about it a little methodically, and some of it I left very open. And what that meant was, first of all, was the notion of self disruption. You know, I I was on a path. I could have gotten a promotion. Or work somewhere else, gotten more money, did you know. But they're again, like I said, rearranging chairs on the Titanic, really. Um I wanted to unplug myself from this world, the of media, and basically unlearn everything that I had learned. Because in doing that, you know, re literally rebooting, it's not like just switching off the Mac I'm, switching the mac off disconnecting it from the from the <laughs> power and maybe not even connecting it back into the wall again you know um so i wanted to strip myself of all the accumulated trappings of having been a senior media executive and it in, included both the very superficial things but also the and the less the, the more sort of uh the the more philosophical things on the superficial side, you know, you don't travel business at first anymore. That's a humbling. You don't have your assistant actually booking your travel anymore. And I'm bringing that up because that's actually one of my biggest challenges is that I've been on such a vast, like, journey, <laughs> and I've been traveling so extensively, I miss that. At least I missed it for the first few months. You don't enjoy the trappings that, you know, of the name because I don't like using that I used to work for MTV thing anymore. I just think that you have to travel as a civilian and become humble and know what it's like to not have those privileges. And so I've been doing that. Um, I wanted to unlearn everything so I could could make space in the hard drive to, to acquire new knowledge. And I had been writing checks for 20 years to charities and social causes that I was drawn to, but I had not actually been in the business of serving anybody or anything for a very long time. And what that means is not the, the soup kitchen idea, which I don't, I'm not, I think it's wonderful. I think we all should do that, but to really put myself bodily into situations that require me to serve somebody or something, um, with all my being, you know, not just a check, And, uh, you know, so that was one thing that I wanted to do. Um, And then it was to create, to learn how to create again in a very organic and very rough manner, not learn how to make, for instance, um, you know, VR films, you know, which I I did also learn. But I'm just saying... (laughs) But I wanted to really get into the nuts and bolts, the dirtiness of it, the the grit of doing something with your hands, for instance, um, to create like that, you know? Um, And then to travel and to dream again. And so I started this, uh, you know, about 18 months ago. And one of the first, so one of the first, I wanted to start with the service portion, and my my mother has uh, developed Alzheimer's, and you know while I have she's in India, and so while I haven't spent more than two weeks with her in the twenty years I've been in the U.S., and so I went back home to India, and I've spent a lot of time with her because it brought me back to the source, you know, to the 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 sort of the crucible, if you will, and. My mom's a hero for me. She's one of the most empowered women I've ever met um, in a very different way than the way that we view empowered women in the West. Um, she There's a whole other podcast we can do about her when you, whenever, whenever you want, but the point is that she is one of the most self-reliant, heroic people I've ever met and also one of the most selfless. To see her now becoming entirely dependent on others for her physical and spiritual needs is just an incredibly humbling but also a very terrifying thing for me so i have spent a lot of time in my own my sabbatical just being with her being of help physically emotionally with her learning from her um, what it's like now to be in this state you know because who knows i might be that in that way so, but also giving back what she gave me uh, Something that is in, completely incomparable, and then beyond that, um, you know, in 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 2016 in April, I I saw a TED talk in Vancouver um, by a gentleman by the name of Alexander Betts. He's a Oxford University professor. and He's a specialist in refugees, and I was so moved by the talk he delivered that. I had always been very sensitive about people who had been disenfranchised and homeless. And I was so moved by what he said that I started my service journey actually based on his talk. And I journeyed to Lebanon um, and I worked in a Syrian refugee camp for a while uh, without... I wasn't there as a media executive, just a guy who's showing up from New York to do some good. And honestly, that was probably the single most profound experience of my entire life. I mean, short of my daughter being born or something like that. It was definitely the most moving, educational, cleansing, gratifying thing I've ever done. And I feel a little guilty, to be honest, from that, because I believe that those folks that I went to serve gave me much more than I gave to them. It's the truth. I mean, I gave money and I gave my time and I did things that I've never done for anybody. But um, it, it because they gave me my life back, actually. And it's, uh, it's more than I could have ever bargained for and I'll be so grateful ever, forever. And I will, I mean, I think it's not the end. The thing is that's going to have to become a part of my regular life because I'm not going to wait for 20 years. I don't have that time to reimagine my life again and to go back and serving, to serving people. I think we just need to make that a fabric of our lives on a daily basis or a weekly basis or something, Some, some kind of, you have to be on a schedule with that. Actually, and I was telling you that I just came back from my... Uh, daughter's uh, graduation from a high school commencement ceremony and Al Gore was there delivering a speech and there's something he said which deeply resonated and that is this idea of service, you know, that not only should you be servicing your community and the world at general art, but also your country. And I think that to me, that experience in the refugee camps taught me things that I just haven't learned in 20 years in, in the U.S., And it's not about, by the way, it was surprising because I went there programmed by media to imagine these hungry, angry, devastated people that would be lunging for the food that we brought to them and being abusive because we're American and we're also kind of responsible for what happened to them. But instead I encountered the most resilient and gracious and beautiful people that I might have ever met, and that was so incredibly humbling to me. You know, but here I am complaining about business class and coach travel, and these people have lost everything. And, uh, and the other thing was that that I also encountered this other community, which was of the people, the volunteers from around the world that had come to help them. And I encountered a whole other different segment of of humanity. And so these are some of the most incredible and inspiring people that you will ever meet. And they are not, they're ordinary people. There is a male nurse from Germany, this, this human rights lawyer from Poland, this garbage collector from Sweden who actually started the NGO that I worked for, this engineer from Norway, this Stanford a uh, student who gave up, who, who took one year off just to, she's like she was barely 19 or 20, just took a year off to do this dangerous and hard work. And and they're all living in these ramshackle, incredibly arduous and dangerous circumstances simply to help somebody else. And I, I have to tell you that I have come back from that just with a a whole new way of looking at who is a hero and who is not a hero in this in this world and um I, you know I, I i could just go on and on about this because to me if i was to if i was ever in a situation where i could i had to in, say to someone here are the 10 to 20 people that i would enlist to save my life it would be the people i spent my time with there and they were not like all angels and they all were not great with sense of humor. And Some of them were rough and tumble. But, man, they rolled out of bed at six with no coffee, no breakfast, no nothing to load those trucks that we took to refugee camps and to entertain the children and to save the lives of people who had just seen their parents' heads get, heads get blown off. I mean, it's just a, it's a mind-blowing experience. So I've done a lot of that stuff. you know, I've worked with uh, underprivileged uh, you know children in India, underprivileged women in India. I've in, involved my daughter in some of these exercises in these enterprises when she could. And uh, you know it, it's just it's it's been quite it's been quite remarkable because I mean, I'm discovering another dimension in myself through these experiences. And it's not the sense of greatness or, you know, um, that I'm some great man going out there and doing these... No. But my, my my relative sense of self is very different now, having met the heroes that have survived incredible adversity and still are able to smile and talk to you and those that are have given up everything else their own lives their own lovers and friends to come and help them it's just a very different that's a that ecosystem is very different then you know the notion of learning how to do stuff you know with your hands not with the the new macbook pro or whatever (laughs) um you know so I've been photographing I consider myself a photographer so one of the things that has been great is that I've been actually fully indulging in that which was a, really a serious passion has now become a document of my mm. you know of my journey basically so I've been shooting a lot all all around the world um but what I've learned also is that I've learned how to make furniture for instance with my hands, like, and not in a very sophisticated way, you know, and that was also a form of therapy, because when David Bowie died, and another one of my heroes, I was in Lucknow, my hometown, with my mom, and I was devastated, and I had just bought a new apartment, it was empty, and I was going to get furniture made anyways, and then I, me, and a carpenter, a local carpenter and a local upholsterer came together and they had never heard of Bowie. And these are not sophisticated people. They use very rough tools. And I said, we're going to make a whole collection of furniture inspired by David Bowie. And they were like, who's he? And we're, you know, I told them a little bit. And from what started as one piece of furniture became... Now I think twenty-five. A collection of twenty-five pieces of furniture. That it's just a uh, remarkable—not. It's beautiful, first of all, but it's also a remarkable collaboration because we're connecting two worlds that would had no relationship with each other. Um, So I mean, I'm really, really proud of that, you know, and it's very humbling to go back to, I've learned how to light a shot properly. You know, I mean, imagine 20 years in media, mm-hmm. you know, I never needed to be adjusting lights and doing stuff like that, but I've taken lighting classes from people I've admired. I've taken lessons from people in filmmaking from people I've admired and I've said, they said, well, we just Googled you and you made films. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm here in a, as a student. I need to learn from you what you know because I'm I'm back to school in a way, you know. (laughs) And then also the notion of sharing. You know, so somewhere down the road in my journey, people started inviting me to speak at conferences. And initially, these talks were all about my experiences in media and what's the future of media and what's the future of this and all of that. And I did those and I, you know, I take pleasure in my work, but somewhere in there i i started telling people what i'd like to talk about rather than what they want me to talk about and i started talking about my learnings in my journey in media and in the world and what i thought was missing and what i thought we should be doing better without sounding preachy or whatever you know because i'm i mean i'm not i don't know i i don't even know what what how to fix what's wrong but i'm willing to give it a shot, you know, I'm willing to change myself to be able to make a difference. So I've been touring behind a couple of talks. Um, One is called The Voices of the Voiceless, which is about this terrible inequity that I think that exists in the world, not just in the distribution of wealth or food or medication or whatever, but also in the access to media and storytelling that, you know, 10% of the world owns 90% of the world's storytelling machinery. And almost a very high percentage of humanity can never get their stories told. As a result of which, we can say whatever we want about them and the world will believe it. I can tell you, for instance, that not you, but media has been telling the world that I forget the media. Actually, our president has been telling the world that Syrian refugees are all terrorists and they will come and take your jobs and bomb you. I don't know if he's ever met a single one of them. Or if most of the people in this country have actually ever heard a Syrian refugee story from themselves. I happen to have gone and hung out with hundreds of them. I didn't meet a single person who wants to come to the U.S. I didn't meet a single person who wants to bomb us. I didn't meet a single person who says, you know, I never want to go back. They all want to go back home to their own countries. I mean, who wants to leave their own home? So the point I'm making is that there's a narrative that we've created without giving the other side a chance. And this is not five people. There are 11 million Syrian refugees in the world, some inside and some outside Syria. So so in a similar way, we have used shorthand code for entire cultures, you know, Afghanistan, the Taliban, they all misogynist, you know, Uh, and so on and so forth. So the, so my talks have become more about my observations and what needs to be corrected in the worlds that I've occupied, you know, and one could disagree with me, of course, and I'm happy to learn. I just think that we need to shift the focus from making incremental slight adjustments to our strategies Um and think about radical changes that actually take the reality of the world as it is into account rather than our manufactured reality of it you know
0: i find it really interesting the kind of the through line of your life as you've shared it with me so far has been one of kind of being being the prince in the beginning and then being sort of another prince with an MTV, kind of the senior media executive. And with each of those moments, you were, you made a, a conscious choice to shift, whatever that shift could look like. And in this case, it's almost like your experience by purposefully putting yourself in this refugee experience, you allowed all of these other new insights to move you as opposed to kind of you methodically saying, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. to be, you know, to be able to climb the ladder at MTV, it kind of had the reverse effect, it moved you. And now there is this opportunity to, to share your voice in much of a similar way how at MTV you didn't have a voice either.
1: Yes, it's true.
0: And everyone had a a specific perception of you based on the media, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. or based on their own notions and and so it to me it, it it feels like it's completely in line with your purpose and and who you are meant to be just based on all the challenges that you've had plus your amazing persistence because usually the universe throws us challenges and when we get the first no or the first wall we turn back and we're like oh maybe that wasn't the root but actually those are the roots yes it's sort of like my my in my um perspective is if i keep getting no from somewhere it must mean that that is the way yes and i have to push through something whatever it is in order to receive some i i call it spiritual growth but it's inner growth that at the ultimately empowers us
1: mm-hmm I mean, I couldn't agree more. You used two words in, the, in, in, the, in what you just said that to me are very, that they, are key. One is purpose and the other is no. The no is very important because, you know, we are really not taught how to deal with no. In our high schools and colleges, we don't actually teach rejection, how to deal with rejection. We try to t- train people for success, but the truth is if there's one job and 100 people have applied, 99% of the people will be rejected, right? So how do you deal with the rejection portion of it is the question. And, you know, I think – but what you said also about no is a very interesting thing that when someone says no to me, you know, I, I, I'd i be lying if I said it do- doesn't hurt or, or there's, there isn't a twinge of something that occurs. But it makes me stronger. It makes me more devious in the way that I am going to actually do the thing I've set out to do. This is, I've just learned from over the past years that, you know, no, this is going to be, make me better and different. This is not going to kill me. This is not going to depress me in the end. This is not going to bring me down. Um, so that's, it has been, for, it's true. I mean, I've been rejected so many times that I I couldn't even I could write a whole book on just a list of my rejections. I'm sure many of us could, but I think that's not the point. The point is, the more interesting book to read would be how did one navigate those rejections? Because I'm sitting here with you. I did something with my life. It's not necessarily the great, but you know, I did something with my life. You know, when I left my home in, as a prince in Lucknow in India. People said I would come back with my tail between my legs within six months because who else is going to give you the lifestyle that you had <laughs> there with five servants going up and down, you know, at every you know, doing everything for you. Servants, by the way. I <laughs> think the word is so obnoxious to use. But the point is uh, that, you know, I've learned that you cannot A, base yourself esteem or your plans on what other people are saying. Secondly, you cannot take no for an answer. It's just, you have to navigate around. The, other, the second word is that the word purpose. That's very important. I think we should come back to it.
0: This has been just fascinating listening to all these milestones in your life and milestones i i think people throw that word out there to mean something but in this in this case for me each of these moments in your life has been profound and transformational and that i believe is what makes us human and our ability to actually use that in order to benefit others whether it's by sharing their story or or, you know, being of service, that is, to me, the most profound thing we can do with what we've learned, so, so thank you for that. And um, because I was so mesmerized, we didn't get to the intuitive reading, uh, although uh, it is something that I, I am very excited to share with you, and that is coming up. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at all possible show episodes are available on itunes google play and our website allpossibilitiesshow.com. show.com this show is produced by mouth media network copyright 2017 all rights reserved no portion of the show may be distributed or published without the expressed written permission of the producers thank you for joining us